All right, good morning. So we are taking a pause here. This is week five of our systematic theology. The last four weeks that we've looked at the doctrine of Scripture and tried to ascertain what does the entirety of God's Word teach on this subject of bibliology. So this morning is a Q&A, and uh, before we get started, I'm going to ask Carrie to open us in a, a brief word of prayer, and then we'll dive right in. Let's pray together. Use that mic. I have a microphone. <laughs> Our Father, this morning we come before you, and Lord, um, in setting time aside to to consider um, right doctrine, to consider right beliefs um, in our heart of hearts about who you are. Lord, we uh, are confessing and acknowledging our um, absolute need for you, our need for you to um, open our hearts, our understandings, to enlighten our minds to the truths of your word. Um, I pray that you might make this time profitable um, and that um, we would just be uh, before you in humility and, and trem- tremble before your word. And uh, Lord, we just, we ask that you would edify your people, build us up and give us a fuller and more glorious vision of who you are as we discuss these things together. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Thank you, Carrie. So again, we're trying to encourage everyone to come up close. We're going to try to have an intimate classroom setting. This is not about us. The reason we're up here on the stage is not because we're high and lifted up. None of us are uh, necessarily theologians or seminary pastors or Bible scholars. Um, We just wanted to do this so the camera could capture us. So um, what we don't want this to be is stump the chump or we have all the answers. What we do want this to be, like I said, is a discussion about the things that we've been talking about the last four weeks. Uh, Biblical um, bibliology, the study of what God's word says. So what we hope this to be is a practical application We want to ask the question, so what? You know, we feel like these things are fairly clear and straightforward, but you may have questions that you want to ask. Or as I go through a review of what we've taught on the last four weeks, something may be spurred in your mind that you want to ask. So we're going to encourage you um, to uh, step up to the microphone here uh, when you have a question. Um, And just very clearly, we ask that you would not make a lengthy uh, uh, statement, but to phrase your questions in the form of a question. That would be helpful. And so we're going to uh, uh, just go through this and talk about the practical application of what we've been talking on. Uh, I was remembering uh, what Francis Schaeffer once said to frame this discussion. Francis Schaeffer, for those of you that know, was a wonderful Christian teacher, theologian, and apologist. And he had a little academy up in the Swiss Alps called Labrie uh, during the turbulent 60s and 70s. Thousands of young Uh, Christians who were looking for truth would gravitate there to learn about God's word to find some meaning in life. And up in the hills of the Alps, Carolyn and I went there four years ago, and we wanted to go see Labrie, and we stood on the back balcony of his chateau where he taught people. And I was reminded as we looked out on the Alps about what Francis Schaeffer said about a watershed that he could look at. Off in the distance, you could see a mountain range and a huge valley. And Schaefer said that in America today, we are at a watershed moment in Christianity. What he meant was, he said, if you look out in the distance, and we were looking at this, there was an invisible line across the top of those Alps. 
And there was a huge watershed there. And, and when it would rain, a rain droplet to the left of that invisible line would go down into a watershed that went into the Rhineland up north through Germany and end up in the cold waters of the North Sea. On the other side of that line, that watershed, a droplet that fell would go down into this other valley that would go south towards the Mediterranean and end up in warm water a thousand miles apart. And the point that Schaefer was making was that we have a watershed in how we view scripture. There is an invisible line. Which side of the line do we fall as Christians and as a church on the authority of the word of God? And that's why we have undertaken the last four weeks this systematic theology to ask the question, what does scripture, what does God's word teach about itself? And that's what we're going to undertake today because I think we all recognize intuitively that the soft days, as Schaefer said, the soft days of Christianity are behind us now. And we know that it's going to be increasingly more difficult to live in this world as a Christian. So we have to be very uh, uh, dedicated to drawing that line and understanding where the authority of Scripture is and that we come down on the right side of that line. So with that as um, kind of a, an opening statement about what we're going to be talking about, let me very quickly review what we've gone through the last four weeks. And I'm just going to unpack very quickly uh, what these men, and Stephen wishes he could be here, but he's teaching the, uh, the youth group this morning. Uh, we'll just very quickly go through this, and hopefully this will spur some of the questions uh, that you've had, and we encourage you to ask those questions. So, if I might, very briefly... In week one, Stephen Parkin introduced us to the idea of theology, the study of the things of God. And more specifically, if you remember, he introduced the term systematic theology, which again asks the question, what does the entirety of Scripture say on any one given theme or topic? And then we dove into bibliology, which we've talked about, which is God's Word, the study of special revelation, which in week two, Carrie taught us special revelation, God's word, in opposition to what is general revelation, what he's revealed through nature. And Kerry introduced us to uh, three new terminologies, well, not new, but we discussed the inspiration of scripture, that it's breathed out by God. God spoke to men that authored the Bible to record his word in their own unique style and, and uh, methods. Kerry also introduced us to the, the concept of infallibility or inerrancy. Infallibility meaning not having the capability of being wrong, inerrancy meaning factually not being wrong, and then also the idea of authority, that scripture is the authority over all other authorities and uh, source of it, sources of information. So that was week two, and we'll, I'm sure we'll have some questions on those topics. Uh, week three, Stephen taught again on the clarity of God's word, the fact that it's clear and understandable. You don't have to have a PhD or um, a a master's in theology to understand the Bible for those that are picking it up and reading it. Also, the necessity that God's word is necessary for salvation and the sufficiency that the God's word is sufficient for our salvation. And then finally in week four, J.D. spoke on the preservation of the scriptures, the acts by where, uh, whereby God has preserved the books of the Bible throughout the years to give us um, his special revelation in the form we have it today, the canonicity which is uh, the church's recognition and acceptance of those books as scripture, as God's inspired word. And then finally, transmission in 
translation, how we came to have the Bible that we have today and uh, the different uh, translations. So, as an introduction, that should spur some questions. There are no dumb questions. Please ask your questions. You might spur somebody on to ask a question that they were thinking, or they may have the same question. So with that, we'll open it up. What's on your mind that we've talked about these past few weeks? Maybe I'll, I'll open up with a question. We met the other day, and we went through some of these questions, and it was very fruitful. So I guess one of, if I'll, I'll throw this to you first, J.D., and then I've got one for you if nobody else has any others. Um, with regards to inerrancy, mm-hmm. um, why, why do we have to believe in inerrancy? Is, is that like a, a necessity in order to be a saved Christian? What's so important about that? It's a good question, um, and one that you and I have talked about in years past, and I've talked to other people about too. Um, can you be a Christian? Will you go to heaven if you don't believe that the Bible is inspired by God, or if you don't believe or that you don't believe that it's inerrant, put it that way. If you, if you believe the Bible has errors, are you really a Christian? And we have to be careful about protecting the purity of the gospel. We don't want to add in anything into that. So we know that salvation comes through faith in Christ, belief in who Jesus is as the Son of God and what he did um, in the necessity and sufficiency of his work, dying and rising again. So could you be wrong about something and say, you know what, I think there's some errors in the historical records in the Old Testament? and still believe in the true gospel? The answer to that technically is yes. Um, You cannot believe in the biblical doctrine of inerrancy and still be a genuine believer. However, I would say that it is still a critical error for this reason. You may believe that. You may believe that the Bible has some errors, some factual errors, and still be a Christian. But if you believe that, the people who come after you won't be Christians. And here's why because you have opened the door to allow this critical error in that cuts the legs out, not just from maybe some historical points in the Old Testament, but from the fact of the resurrection, from the fact of Christ's deity and the gospel. Once you open the door to deciding which things are true in the Bible, then you become the one who decides which things are true. And people are fickle, people change, and eventually someone's going to say, I don't think the, the resurrection is true. And at that point, you have... Um, abdicated the gospel. At that point, um, your mission will be ineffective. You won't be preaching the true gospel. People won't be believing the true gospel. So yes, while a person individually may not believe in inerrancy um, and still be a Christian, still go to heaven, that error is so critical because it undermines all of scripture and will kill the church, will kill the mission of the church. And so that's something that cannot happen, which incidentally is why We as a church have chosen to make inerrancy one of those essentials of the faith that you must believe to be a member. Um, We recognize that it's not um, an actual component of the gospel, but it's so closely related and so necessary for the unity and the health of the church that we can't agree to disagree on that here. So we've we've determined to to consider that as an essential matter of the faith. And, And really, Orthodox Christians for the ages have believed that the Bible is God's word and without error. So we're standing... Um, in good company there. So that's how I would, I would speak to that. I don't know if you'd add anything to that on why it's so important to believe in inerrancy. Um, well, I, th- I think going back to the question of can we be saved without a belief in inerrancy, um, I, I love something that you brought up at breakfast the other morning, Scott, that um, you know, a, a, a picture of the, the purity of the gospel, um, salvation, 
by grace through faith alone is, is so evident in the thief on the cross uh, beside Jesus. Uh, the Lord said, this day you shall be with me in paradise. And that man had no opportunity to make sure that his doctrine was on point. Um, but he put his faith in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that was effectual for his salvation. Um, so, you know, like you said, we, we want to be very, very careful to guard that purity of the gospel um, and add nothing to it, take nothing away from it. Um, we're told that um, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, turning to him from sin, um, and if you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Um, so I think that, that that does factor in. I think it's also, um, it is difficult to envision or to believe that someone would come to salvific faith without um, that, that piece of, of believing in the scriptures because faith comes by hearing. Mm-hmm. Hearing comes by the word. Um, so the salvific faith, faith that is effectual to salvation, is in the word. And, um, you know, how would, how would one be able to place their faith wholly in that gospel, in that word of Christ, um, and still take issue with, with its veracity. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's, it's essential, it's important, um, but it is, it's not a prerequisite. No, there are no prerequisites for salvation, only faith. Okay, that, was, that was my question. Linda? I hope this isn't dumb, but this is, um, you're talking about adding on to faith and taking away from the truth of scriptures. There's a lot of, it seems like there's a lot being said about the Enneagram these days. And I just have a question about that because I have a friend who's very into that. And she is a professing believer. Um, But is it possible to use that as, like she says, it's been very helpful for family relationships. is it possible to use something like that as a helps and not be adding on to the scripture? Or what do you, is it occultic or whatever? What's the word you used? Again? Enneagram? Enneagram. It's personality. Are you, are you familiar with that? I'm not even familiar okay, with that. Okay, it's like there's I, I, I nine personalities. Are you familiar with that? Okay, so I I am, and I have a lot to say about that. I'll try to make it a short answer. Okay, I'm going to go sit down again. Okay, sure. Yeah, thank you for your question. Good question. Quick show of hands, how many of you guys have heard about the Enneagram? Maybe some of you have been called, I don't know what they all stand for, INFPJ. There's all these acronyms. It's basically a new spin on categorizing people according to personality. Um, And and maybe you're familiar with the Myers-Briggs or other. There's always these new, they're kind of fads. They come and go. Um, the Enneagram, I do have concerns about, and here's why. Um, and it comes back to really our doctrine of Scripture. So, so it's an appropriate question. Um, we talked about the sufficiency of Scripture. The Scripture is enough. One of the doctrines we will cover in future weeks is the doctrine of anthropology, which is the doctrine of man. What does the Bible teach us about humans? And so when we start looking to other sources of authority and truth to really discover what it means to be human and how we are made. The whole Enneagram system discounts the fact that we're made in the image of God and really has pagan uh, roots. Um, And the person who designed it was steeped in occultic practices. 
So really, it's not a trustworthy source. And while I know that some Christians are genuine and sincere and might be helped by it, I think those same benefits that they've discovered through the Enneagram, that we can get those without the Enneagram. Um, in fact, there's some people, and I would, I would categorize Scott as one of these people, um, who are people persons, and they uh, connect well with people, and they're able to just, through common sense and common grace, identify different strengths and weaknesses and be able to connect well with them. Um, some of us have that, some of us don't, some of us have it to varying degrees. I would just say that any good that comes out of that is not due to the Enneagram per se. I think we can have those same benefits just by wisdom and uh, general revelation, common sense, some of those things. And I would caution Christians away from that because what those systems tend to do is they tend to make excuses for sin, if I can just be really blunt. And I don't know if this is going to offend anybody here, but oftentimes they'll say, well, you know, the reason I responded this way or the reason I'm not obeying Jesus is because I'm a, you know, put in the little acronym. So the reason I'm angry and belligerent is because of my personality type, not because I'm a sinner. The reason why I'm fearful and shy and self-conscious is not because I worship myself. It's because I have this personality trait. And, and, those, and once you adopt those personality traits and say, that's just who I am, you're not only discounting the fact that we're made in the image of God, you're not only excusing sin, you're also ignoring the fact that God wants all of us to grow and be sanctified. So that doesn't mean all our, all our personalities will look the same, but it means all of us have room for growth and change because none of us are quite like Jesus yet. And we're all going to be more like Jesus as we grow, but we'll still be different in personality. So your husband Mike and I have different personalities, and neither of us are today who God means us to be someday. We're both going to be changing to be a more Christ-like version of Mike Everett or J.D. Summers. So I don't think the Enneagram is helpful, to be, to be blunt. And I, I think that it potentially undermines the doctrine of sufficiency. It's bad anthropology. I think it discounts sanctification and makes excuses for sin. So I'm not a fan. So I don't know if I made anybody angry, but you asked, and that's my, that's my input on that. Good question. Great question, and, and now Carrie and I now know what that is, so thanks for that. Adam? Um, so C.S. Lewis wrote Reflections on the Psalms, and he talked about the uh, imprecatory Psalms, and he was like, uh, David is here, he's just sinning, and we're supposed to take this these these imprecatory psalms as an example of somebody whenever they go too far. And I just wanted to know what you guys think about the imprecatory psalms. I've never heard of uh, uh, any of the imprecatory psalms preached on before. So I don't, I've, I've always been a little confused, but it seems to me like they're, you should be, like they're, they're not sinning. <laughs> it seems like they're not an example of somebody sinning to me. So. I'm going to ask our uh, worship leader about the worship book of the Bible, the Psalms, who just taught us Psalm 2, which talks about God in heaven laughing and crushing his enemies with, you know, a rod of iron, so. I think that how we, how we view every one of the Psalms in particular um, is, is going to be informed by how we how we view the scriptures as a whole, and how we view um, the, the doctrine of inspiration. Um, so it's not that the scriptures don't have record of um, men and women um, you know, acting in sin, um, but those always exist in, in, a, in a narrative form. The Psalms exist as a, as a as a collection of worship songs. 
Um, and as such, they, you know, having proceeded from God, because we, we affirm the doctrine of inspiration, um, he is the, um, the original source of these scriptures, um, then we have to believe that he is revealing something about himself and who he is and how he desires to be worshipped in these worship songs. Um, so I would say that anyone who looks at the imprecatory Psalms um, and sees David um, calling for justice, calling for um, judgment upon, upon sin, upon the wicked, and says, well, that can't be uh, you know, congruous with who God is, um, is failing to interpret those passages uh, with an eye on the whole of Scripture and on who God reveals himself to be throughout um, the Old and the New Testament. He's a God of love and of mercy, uh, absolutely. He's also a God of justice and judgment um, and who pours out his wrath on, on the wicked. Um, he is long-suffering, but there comes a, a point um, where he says enough. And um, so I think that you know, if we inform our understanding of those imprecatory psalms, with sound doctrine, solid understanding of, of inspiration, that this, this is from God, it's an expression of who he is, it proceeds from him, and this is how he desires to be worshipped, um, then I think it's very difficult to look at that and say, well, this is wrong. Um, I don't know if that yeah. answers your question. I, I, would, I would add to that, I really have appreciated and enjoyed much of C.S. Lewis's writings, um, his children's books, you know, Narnia series, one of my favorites, and some of his other works as well. Um, I quoted him last week uh, in the sermon, talking about the goodness of the law, that you're fumbling around through the mush and the muck, and then you finally arrive at something solid, and it's good. So I, I appreciate him and have learned much from him, but at the same time, he was pretty wacky theologically. He wasn't he, he had some, some weird different views that we wouldn't agree with. So just because we can benefit from some of what he says doesn't mean we agree with everything he says. And his view of the Psalms is deficient. It's, it's not correct. And I agree with everything Carrie just said. And as Carrie was talking about you know, who God is, that's really the focus. So Psalm 11 um, says, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. That's who God is. That's what God is like. He's just. And it's good for him to hate wickedness. And so then David prays in response to who God is, let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteous deeds, and the upright shall behold his face. So I agree with Carrie, for us to love God is to recognize who he is in his totality. And then for our hearts to be aligned with his so I think when, when we go too far is when we take vengeance into our own hands. So vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The psalmist recognizes that, says vengeance belongs to God, I'm asking him to do that. And that is fully in keeping with his person and, and with his will. So we have to be careful that those don't become our favorite psalms, that we pray against anyone who ever annoys us to the slightest degree. Um, there is, I think, a sense of wisdom to recognize you know, the Lord delights in mercy, and so we should as well. But there's also a time for justice. And, when, and there is a time where that's appropriate. And we should, it's even appropriate for us to ask for that at times. Um, so yeah, that's a small answer to a, a deeper question. But yeah, good question. Great question. These are fantastic. We hadn't even anticipated uh, these first two questions. So I can't wait to hear what else you've got. Up in the balcony, Michael Dietzel. 
Okay, I'll, re I'll repeat that real quick. Um, why uh, do we use the ESV, in, or do I use the ESV in, you, typically in preaching here? And for me and Carrie, what other translations do we use in study and prep? And how much do you And how much? <laughs> um, as far as to why I preach out of the ESV, I use the, um, I've used the King James, the New King James, the New American Standard, and the ESV primarily throughout my life at different points. Um, <clears throat> and I started using the ESV in 2010, um, and that was largely because the, at the church I was at, and I was starting to preach there, that was what many of the people had. So part of it was just a practical thing. How many of you guys have an ESV with you today? Raise your hand if you have a different translation with you today. Okay, so probably 80% 80, 80 of the people here, 90% have the ESV. Some of that's maybe because, you know, that's what I'm going to be preaching out of. But um, I do think the ESV is one of the best balances today of literal and transparent to the original text, but also it flows and has good literary quality to it. The New American Standard is maybe more literal in some places, but I don't think it has the same literary beauty and flow to it. So I think the ESV reads a little smoother, um, and it feels more familiar to those of us who are maybe used to the King James or the New King James just because it follows kind of the, the same flow in terms of um, the phrases and things like that. So I think the ESV is highly literal and highly readable, and so that's why I choose to preach out of that because I want both of those things to be present in the sermon. I do reference the NIV and the New American Standard regularly in my study, um, probably on a weekly basis. So I don't know if you want to add to that. Um, so I would, uh, I would say that I, I love using the ESV because it does seem like, like J.D. said, it's kind of the best of both worlds um, because there's, a, there's an accuracy and an um, adherence to um, original languages that you see in the ESV that's not, not there in a number of other translations. Um, but I do definitely love to use some, some other tools um, when I'm uh, prepping to teach um, so what I typically will do if I'm trying to get a, um, sort of more comprehensive view of how a, a passage is, is translated in other, um, other texts, um, is to pull up like an interlinear tool that has ESV, NIV, NASB, uh, King James, um, uh, together. And it's really kind of informative to see those side by side sometimes, um, so I, I do love the New American Standard Bible just because it's um, grammatically very close to how the, the Greek um, kind of falls out. We can't, it can make it a little bit clunky when you're just um, reading it aloud um, because it's, it's, it's structured, structured a little bit differently than how we would typically say something. Um, but it, it, it does help if you're looking at the, at the original languages, at the, at the Greek, to use the um, New American Standard Bible. NIV is, um, I love for uh, sometimes more kind of poetic, creative reasons. It tends to be, uh, have a little bit more of a dynamic equivalence approach. Um, but if you're, if you're wanting to get more of the um, sometimes feel of a passage, the NIV can be a great translation for that as well. And then all of my scripture memory is about 95% in the King James, so that's, it's, it's never going away. If some of you guys are interested in translations and, and language and things like that, but maybe you don't know Hebrew and Greek, which is going to be most of us, 
Another um, translation I'll throw out there, which is kind of interesting, is called the New English Translation, the NET, the NET Bible. And there's, um, it's free online, and they have the complete, uh, there's like a study Bible, but the notes are all translators' notes. So the notes aren't interpretive comments like you'd have in the MacArthur Study Bible or um, maybe the NIV Application Study Bible or the ESV Study Bible. All the notes are translators' notes. So you'll have a verse, then there'll be footnotes on that verse that speak to, here's why we translated it this way. Here's two other ways it could be taken, but we chose this option. So if you're interested in just interacting with the text, um, the, the New English Translation, the NET Bible, is a modern translation that gives you all of the study notes. They had this translation committee in this process that through the years, and it was an open process, they took feedback and almost crowdsourced questions and insights from different scholars and pastors, and then they basically documented their translation process into, in the form of study notes. So if you're really into this kind of a, a topic, some of you guys, your eyes are glazing over and going, you know what, I got my Bible and it's a good one. I'm not worried about all this. But some of you guys really like this. Check out the NET Bible. You can find that for free online. They also make print versions. And I think I've recommended it to, I think Diane and I have talked about this before at one point. Um, the NET Study Bible has all the notes, the translator notes, which is just interesting and helpful. Joe Harvey. First of all, the class is wonderful, and it's like um, I think we're all really thankful that you guys are taking us through the doctrine of the Bible. Uh, this question ultimately for Carrie, uh, but I want to contextualize it a little bit. And in your class, because I like confessions and stuff and, and that sort of stuff, and, and your class was basically the biblical summary that gets summarized in the confessions, and we talked about the systematic things and so on, and so it's really great. So I'm going to read from a confession that I like. There's a lot of good ones. One that I would like that kind of summarizes your class, and then I'll ask you my question, okay? Um, this is from paragraph 5 of chapter 1 of the Westminster Confession. And it's really cool because the first thing you guys went through is Scripture. They established that because that's where everything else comes from. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense. Anyway, uh, paragraph 5 says, We are moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scriptures and the heavenliness of the matter, this is the kind of stuff that you were saying, and the heavenliness of the matter, uh, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies in the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be so here's my question for you. Having said that, how come not everybody believes? Joe, I want to make sure I understand your question. Why, why does not, your question is why, why does not everyone believe because... It seems to Go ahead. If it's self-attesting and, and harmonizes so perfectly, right. So I, I think that the answer to your question is, is kind of rooted in some doctrines that we, we will arrive at soon, um, and probably more specifically the doctrine of, of 
anthropology and the nature of man. Um, so, um, as we look at the the whole of Scripture and what Scripture has to say about man in his natural state, man as he is born into the world, um, we are called uh, dead in our sins. Um, and uh, the kind of um, definitive characteristic of something or someone who is dead is that they are incapable of response uh, to any form of stimuli. And I think that that um, is very purposefully used in the scriptures as, a, as, a, as a, a word picture for the natural man. He's incapable of response, just as a, a corpse is incapable of response to um, spiritual stimuli. So while um, we affirm that God has revealed who he is and his um, justice and righteousness and wisdom and all those things are abundantly apparent um, in general and special revelation. It's just the, the creation is, is pouring it out, is shouting it out. And to us who believe, it's, it's hard to, to say, how can someone miss this? How, it seems impossible. Um, but the reason that they miss it is because they're, they're dead. Mm-hmm. Um, because they, they do not see because their eyes are blinded. Um, they don't understand because their hearts are, are stone. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, um, that I think speaks to, um, the, the, the supernatural aspect of what it means to become saved, to be born again, um, is because in order for us to apprehend these truths and to see God for who he is, he not only has revealed himself, but he must, he must open our eyes and, um, and bring us to life um, and you know, take out that stony heart and replace it with a heart of flesh that can respond to, uh, to spiritual truth and to recognize what God has revealed in, in uh, both general and special revelation. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, so just great. So just let me finish because that, 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 that finishes with our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority is from the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Yep. Absolutely. So as Carrie's talking, uh, he reminded me of 1 Corinthians 2, which says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, which would include the word that the Spirit has inspired, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Um, 1 Corinthians 2 says people can't. And Romans 1 says people won't, that we actually suppress the knowledge of the truth. So we have two things going against us. So the only way we can accept this is a profound work of God's grace. Like he said, new heart, new eyes. Yeah, and, and, we, and we should expect both outcomes. And the problem is not that the Bible isn't understandable or clear. That's not actually the problem. The problem's with us. Now, there's a, some, one of the things we were talking about um, at breakfast the other day, similar to your question. So we're contrasting unbelievers and believers. So why do some people believe and some people don't? Well, let's shift the discussion into even the discussion with believers. So if Scripture is clear, you know, we talk about the clarity of Scripture, and if Scripture is true, 
then why is it that not all Christians agree on what the Bible says? Why is it that we have different views on baptism or different views on the end times or different views on God's sovereignty and salvation and how that works? Why are there different views among the church? Um, Because does that undermine the doctrine of clarity? And maybe that's something you've thought about before. And as I was thinking about that this week, I was reminded of uh, 2 Peter 3, um, which I think speaks to this question. Um, In 2 Peter 3, Peter makes reference to Paul's letters. Um, Some of you are familiar with this passage. Um, And he says, There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And what, what stands out about that verse is it shows us that, yes, Scripture is clear, but it's important that we understand Scripture is not all equally clear. There are some things that Paul has said that are hard to understand. Peter didn't say everything Paul says is hard to understand. No, he says there's some things in there that are hard to understand. So Scripture is clear, but it's not all equally clear. There's some things that are readily apparent, as plain as the nose on your face. And if you have, as you said, half a brain and a willingness to just read it, it'll be clear. But there's other things that are difficult to sort through. So when we say that Scripture is clear, we're not saying it's all equally clear. But that doesn't mean that we can't come to understand them. Um, Peter exhorts these people. He says, um, you, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, knowing what? Knowing that some of these things are hard to understand and some people are going to twist it. Or maybe some people just innocently get it wrong. Knowing this beforehand, we need to take care. We need to be careful in interpreting scripture. Yes, we believe it's clear. We believe there is meaning there to be had. We don't just throw up our hands and say, oh, it's just too hard. No, he says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Growth in knowledge, growth in seeing more of what is there to be seen. So not all Christians agree on what Scripture says, but given enough time, enough humility, and enough holiness, we would, which means one day in heaven we will. One day in heaven we will all agree and understand. So, so I think I'm bringing up this question because it's similar to the one you asked. Why don't all Christians believe? Does that mean it's not clear? Well, some things are not as equally clear as others. It takes more work, more effort, and more time. But we believe that the meaning is there and can be found. So. So the question is, to what degree does believing in inerrancy have to do with maturity? Um, I think a lot because it's a matter of faith, and there's no such thing as a mature Christian who is weak in faith. So I do think it speaks to maturity. Sorry, that's a little bit of a rabbit trail. I'm burning up all our time, but I should probably give it back to the moderator. Still got about uh, seven minutes left, so encourage any other questions before we, we close here. question about because some churches like have corporate confession and profession of their beliefs and I was just wondering what your thoughts are on that and why we don't do that as a church great question it's a liturgy question for our worship leader (laughs) (laughs) so you don't have a stand and and recite together a prayer of corporate confession and then give sort of the assurance of pardon um 
I, I think that <laughs> not, not every aspect of our church's liturgy is, is something that we have arrived at because um, there was um, something in our church constitution about why we do things the way that we do. Um, but I think kind of by nature of the fact that we are um, uh, sort of not, not associated with um, the history of a lot of other denominations and the um, uh, traditional liturgies that you find in um, like the, the, the Presbyterian church, for, instant, for instance, or, or uh, others, um, means that those, those things, not that they are not good or helpful or edifying to um, do that, but it's just something that we, um, is, is not part of our, I guess, history, a part of our background. Um, and as I have kind of spent more time in leading uh, worship here at Redemption Hill, um, there are certain kind of aspects to our liturgy that are still still growing and still changing. And um, I, I think that um, uh, reading aloud scriptures together is something that we uh, desire to do more. We've, we're now in the process of kind of adding in more, more psalms to sing. And uh, so there may be a place for um, corporate confessions or... Um, um, confession isn't the word that I'm looking for, but um, affirmations of doctrine together. Um, so, and that was a really convoluted answer to an excellent question. So, I think, but I we're would, growing. And I would just add to that. I think the question you're asking is is one of form, and I would respond to that to say I think the substance of that is still here. So, on a weekly basis, if you participate in worship here at Redemption Hill, there should be an acknowledgement and even a. a an expression that we believe we are sinful people who apart from Christ cannot draw near to God. We don't do that in a formalized confession. We don't set apart, okay, here's this one moment in the service where, where either someone from the front or we collectively are going to say this, but the substance of that is woven throughout in our prayers, in our songs. I think if you look at the songs that Carrie picks, like I think of um, um, one of the songs we sing is an older hymn text not what my hands have done. It says these, um, these filthy hands are raised, or these guilty hands are raised. Filthy rags are all I bring. That's a confession. Um, but I have come to hide beneath your wings. These holy hands are raised, washed in the fountain of your grace. And now I wear your righteousness. That's the, that's the assurance of pardon. So those things are in our prayers, in our songs, in the scriptures that Carrie reads. They're in the sermons. So those sorts of things, you're asking a question about form, um, form is not essential. Form is not anywhere dictated in Scripture that it has to be done in a certain, um, in a certain ritualistic sense. There's freedom to do that. I don't think there's anything wrong with it, and there's a lot of good in that, like Carrie said. But we're also not sinning or in error if we fail to structure it the same way. But the substance needs to be there. The substance still needs to be present. If you can come to church here and not be confronted with your sin and not be assured of pardon um, through faith in Christ, then something's missing for sure. So, good question. We've got about two minutes left. Are there any final burning questions? We'll take one more question. We'll try to be brief so we can end on time. My wife, Carolyn. Um, we talked about the sufficiency of Scripture 
and there's other churches that have the Apocrypha or whatever. Apocrypha. Uh, they have mm -hmm. the Books of Jubilees. Those. So one, um, how do why do they think that those are appropriate to study, um, and they weren't included in the canon that we were originally given? Um, I know you gave some, you know, requirements for what was included in the Bible, but also then is it a danger to study those and yeah. yeah. And now you have one minute left. Okay, good question. <laughs> good question. The short version is this. Um, they fail the tests for canonicity in terms of authorship, um, coherence with the rest of what scripture teaches, um, and they weren't accepted in, by the early, early church. The reason they were accepted later is um, tradition, and especially in the Roman Catholic tradition. So they had popes and councils that decided we should include this. Um, and we don't recognize that as an authority. We don't recognize papal authority here. Um, in terms of how should a Christian approach those, is it dangerous to read them? No, it's not like if you read those things, it's going to somehow infect you unless you think that it has authority. I think you should be able to read it as this is historical. This is something other people believe in. Like I've read portions from the Quran and the Book of Mormon as well, not because I was interested to learn from them, but because I wanted to just observe historically and just be aware of what's going on out there. So I think we can read it critically, if that makes sense, um, and, and for its historical value, but not read it um, to receive something, not read it with a teachable heart the way we would scripture. So I wouldn't caution Christians when I say, oh, don't ever read that, like it'll somehow, you know, it's got the cooties or something. Um, but we need to read it critically, if, if you read it. And I, I think if you don't read it, you're not missing out on anything. So if you've never studied the Apocrypha or some of these other things, you're not missing anything. It's not the Bible. So that's the short answer. Well, thanks for all those questions. Let me ask real quick, was this fruitful and beneficial for you? Do you like having the opportunity to stop and ask questions? Okay. Well, this was like a, a pilot run to see. Yeah, this was a test run. Worth doing so. Yeah, yeah. It was fun for us, and um, maybe we'll do it again. Let us know if you'd like to do this again after the next section. Um, but we we do want to stress that these things are not merely intellectual inter, uh, exercises. We do want to stop and and uh, think about what it means that we've been given the very word of God, and to think through these things as a family because they are so important. And so what we hope in our, our systematic theology as we examine these themes and topics and ask what does scripture teach about these things, that we'll ultimately be coming more aware of who God is, his attributes, his commands, what he desires for us,